there have been a few times, maybe more than a few times, in my life so far where I have something that I was anticipating, something that I was planning on, something that I was expecting, and then it didn't turn out the way I had hoped. It turned out completely different than I expected. It could be something as simple as, I don't know, I grabbed this glass of clear liquid and I think that it's water and it turns out to be 7-Up. That's happened a few, anybody ever have that experience? It's a weird, weird feeling. Or the opposite where you, you think it's 7-Up and it's water. It's like there's something weird that happens in your psyche. Or maybe it's that wrapped present that you've been anticipating. It could be at your birthday or maybe Christmas. It's all wrapped up and you have a pretty good idea. I mean, you've done your homework, you've shaken it, you felt the weight, you think you know what this thing is, and then you open it up and it's not what you expect. It's fine unless you're surrounded by people that love you and gave you that gift and you've got to look them in the eye and you've got to make a face. And we taught our children long ago that you smile and say thank you. That's what you do when it's something that you don't expect. <clears throat> I don't know, maybe you got a, a fruitcake when you were thinking it was something else. I don't know what happened. I don't know if you've ever had experience. Things unexpected that can throw us off. Uh, and I'm guessing, let's just take an informal poll this morning. How many people in here like to have things happen exactly like you planned? You're a planner, you like the things happening the way, this is the how it's going to be. You don't like deviation from the plan. All right, there you are. How many people out there, maybe this is uh, you, you are kind of a spontaneous, uh, you know, let's do whatever. You're, you're ready for a surprise. You kind of handle things loosey-goosey. Who's like that? More like that? Okay. And you really frustrate everybody else in the room that just raise their hands. How many people aren't sure? It depends on the day, you can be spontaneous. I'm Pastor Ben, I'm glad you're here with us today. We gather like this, like Christ followers all over the globe. We say this often, we're one big dysfunctional family of faith, but we lift up the name of Jesus because so many years ago, Jesus of Nazareth said he would do it, then rose from the dead. That tomb was empty on a Sunday morning and that changed human history forever and many of our hearts forever. We will radically change. And so we celebrate that again on this first day of the week. And I, I want to encourage you to, to do something with me here. On the count of three, I want you to take a deep breath. It's a good thing to do, to reset. One, two, three. I'll let it out. Science says that some cool things happen when we do that. Take a deep breath. Today we're going to be talking through the rest of Matthew chapter 1. And we're talking about what happens when the unexpected comes our way? And certainly with Mary and Joseph, the unexpected happened. And we're going to lean into the scriptures this morning. So I hope you brought a Bible or a device. You can find Matthew chapter 1. And uh, let's just pause again for a word of prayer and ask God to speak. Father, we come before you in humility. We approach your throne as King and Lord. And uh, Lord, we're asking that you would soften our hearts? Would you open our ears? Would you open our minds to hear what you have to say through your word as we read it, as we soak it in? I pray that your Holy Spirit would move in a powerful way 
And that, Father, you'd speak to us in those moments where things happen that are unexpected, that we would trust you because you've got everything and the whole world in your hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Find Matthew chapter 1. If you were here last week or you caught it online or maybe you haven't caught up with us, last week we kicked off this whole Matthew series and I encourage you to go back and, and listen to that because we find in Matthew's gospel that he's very, very intentional with what he's writing to us. Sometimes we look at scripture and we read it over and we don't really catch all the different wonderful things that are there for us. And if you were here with us last week, you noticed that Matthew was very intentional about several things that we tend to read over because the first 17 verses of Matthew seems kind of boring. It's a bunch of names we don't really know. Well, some of us, we might know a few of the names, but we really, we read over those names. We're like, this is super boring. Why am I reading this? And we kind of miss some pretty key things like the numbers that we talked about last week that there are interesting numbers that happen in those first 17 verses. We find some interesting things that Matthew is very intentional about. Now, a reading of those, like we did last week, we find that David's name is mentioned like five times. David was like considered the golden age kingdom of Israel. Uh, Israel was a pretty short-lived kingdom in the scriptures, but David was like the king of kings. And he, David, it's all about David. And so we saw in those first 17 verses that Matthew's trying to help us understand that this, this coming one, this child, this Jesus Christ of Nazareth, was of the line of David. So on a, a very surface reading, we can read that. But also, Matthew's going even farther than that. We find that there are some interesting numbers. We talked about that, if you remember right, that we have these sections of seven. They're broken into 14 sections. You break them up, you've got six of seven. And we find, as Matthew really wanted to lay out there for us, that Jesus is the bringer of the seventh seven. We call that the Jubilee of Jubilees. So where is the seventh seven? Jesus is bringing it, fulfilling what the prophets Jeremiah and Daniel chapter 9 told us that he would bring. This one coming would bring a Jubilee of Jubilees, not just a, a, a freedom from captives, but a freedom from the entire world of sin. And so Jesus is that Jubilee of Jubilees. Matthew just puts that in there, hoping that we'll draw that out. And remember, we got to the very last statements there in Matthew chapter 1. Remember the, the passage that we always read right over, and we'll find that there's all these fathers. Father of this, father of this, but then we get to this miracle child, Jesus, and his father isn't listed. Who is his father? God the Father. That's the last father. And all this is there for us if we'll just dig, if we'll just kind of see below the surface. And Matthew was intentional about that. All right, so I've set that up. If, if you weren't here, now you kind of caught up a little bit with us, but I encourage you to go back and listen. But let's pick up in Matthew chapter 18. These are seven verses. You probably are familiar with them, but let's try to hear with fresh ears if we could. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his, his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, is that important? 
Okay. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. This passage this morning is one of four sort of narratives, circumstances, situations that speak to a very unusual birth for a royal person. These are not the sorts of origin stories that you would expect of a royal son who would become king. They're odd. First of all, like we just read, there's a betrothal. There's a young Jewish couple that are engaged to be married. And she is found to be pregnant by supernatural means, the Holy Spirit. That's an odd sort of story. Then, as we're going to see in Matthew chapter 2, we have a visit from some people from the east we call the Magi. They were astronomers. They were paying attention to the scriptures, something oddly enough that the people in Jerusalem maybe weren't as keyed up on. That's an odd story. And then we have another few stories, like a, a, a flight to Egypt, a, 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 an escape, if you will, for their very lives to Egypt, and then a return from Egypt. Hang on to that. That's odd. And then we have this whole return to Sticktown Nazareth in un, kind of unrecognized Galilee in the sticks. And so four narratives that include this one that seem to speak to an unusual, unexpected royal birth story. So we're going to be looking at that a little bit more next week. So I hope you can be with us. Every week is just going to be, I hope, eye-opening for us, that the Holy Spirit's going to speak. But what do we find in Matthew's account? Well, first of all, you may not right away recognize it, but we're seeing now this sort of birth story told not from Mary's perspective, but now told from Joseph's perspective. If you look at Luke, which many of us are very familiar with, we just came out of the Advent Christmas season, we're familiar with the shepherds and Mary pondering these things in her heart and the details about the senses and, you know, the shepherds, all that. We're familiar with that, but that's really told more from from Mary's perspective. In this brief few seven verses, we get a perspective from Joseph that we really don't get much privilege to see in most of the Gospels. In fact, Joseph is sort of this silent character throughout the the Gospels that we know was training up Jesus as as a craftsman and an apprentice and a hard worker, a blue-collar worker. All this silence from Joseph. And by the time Jesus starts his ministry, we don't hear from Joseph anymore. But in this passage, we get a rare glimpse into Joseph's perspective. I'm pretty excited about that. 
we get a, a, a little, get a see behind his eyes of this whole moment that changed both of their lives forever. And I wonder, how did Matthew get a hold of this, these details? And certainly, Mary was there throughout Jesus' ministry, and those early disciples may have had conversations with her, but how, how did Matthew get Joseph's perspective? So I just want you to hold on to that. How, how, does, how did that work? Uh, was Matthew directly told by God, let me tell you what Joseph was thinking. Or maybe Joseph and Mary talked about this later on. And so Matthew got to record this unique perspective from Joseph's eyes. And we have this engaged Mary who's in a legal contract, if you will, at least by families, with you know, Joseph's family to, to, to be married. And then she is with child by a divine appointment, by a divine miracle. And Joseph, trying to do the right thing, wants to quietly divorce her, not make a big deal out of it, but it's embarrassing for all the families involved. Think of the, the comments in the, in the town square that would happen. So Joseph's trying to do the right thing, and then while he's thinking about that, while he's got the, you know, the divorce papers in his house, if you will, then an angel comes and visits him and says, it's okay, this is, this is God doing something unexpected. And strangely enough, Joseph agrees. Probably knowing it's, he's going to be facing down some ridicule for probably most of the next several decades. And Joseph, he says, yes. And the angel tells him, this, this child is going to save his people from their sins. It's going to save you, Joseph, from your sins. So, so something miraculous is going on, and Joseph agrees. Now, I wonder, because I, I like to ask these questions, and we won't know all the answers, but did Joseph agree to it out of fear or curiosity? You know, the number one reaction that people have when God visits them in Scripture? It's not, hey, God, come on in. It's fear. Like downright fear that they think they're going to die. And here's Joseph agreeing. Was it out of fear? I don't know. Was it out of curiosity? He's like, i got to see this thing out. i got to see this play out. I don't know what your opinion of, of why Joseph said yes, but he, he agrees. He says okay, and they continue on. And we find out uh, here in this passage, there's twice in this passage. We sometimes say when the, when the Bible repeats something, there might be something there for us to notice. And twice in this passage, in verse 18 and verse 25, we find out that Mary and Joseph didn't officially consummate their marriage until after Jesus, this miracle child, is born. This is odd. This is not the regular way things happen. I've done a lot of premarital counseling and even some marital counseling and Generally speaking, this is a beautiful thing that happens with couples. They have this wonderful, intimate relationship. And Joseph and Mary delay it. And I think part of the reason is they understood that God is doing something very miraculous here. And I'm wondering if they both were taking time to really wrestle with what was happening. 
How is this child going to rescue our people from their sins? Why is this happening in such a miraculous way? Why is God intervening in our lives right now? And I wonder if they just took some time to give it some space for this child to be born, giving God space, if you will, to move in their lives. And so they didn't do the normal way of consummating a marriage until after this child is born, adding to the stark uniqueness of this situation, this special child. Now, there are some traditions that would say that Mary and Joseph never consummated their marriage, which to me is not just illogical, but it doesn't even make sense culturally. In fact, we'll find out as Matthew 12 and 13 come our way, probably many months from now, in Matthew 12 and 13, we find that Jesus' brothers and sisters, by the way, are mentioned by name. Well, the sisters aren't. But we find out that he had brothers and sisters. He had a big family. Again, also characteristic of what would have happened for a Jewish family at that time. So this is the normal way to do it. But we find out they held, they held off until that moment. Something special was happening. And there's something else that, that we talked about a little bit briefly, maybe a few weeks ago, maybe in December, about his name. Now we know Jesus as Jesus. And many times we'll say Jesus Christ. Well, Christ is not his last name, okay? It's weird in our culture. We always have a first and last name, or most cultures do, I guess. Uh, but Christ is his title, uh, Messiah, Messiah is how they'd say it in, in the Hebrew. Uh, but, but Jesus is a name that's sort of been massaged and, and lost over time. But remember, when, when he's called his name in, in these early stages of his life, he's called Joshua, which literally means Yahweh saves. There's something powerful to that name. And, and there's a bit of a play on words here that you may not have noticed. He's supposed to be called God saves. And then in the very next line, the angels say, well, he will save his people from their sins. Wait a minute. That doesn't make sense. I thought the angel just said God saves his people. And then right away, the angel says, and he will save his people from their sins. But wait a minute. Is it God or is it this child? Yes. You see what's happening here? He will God will save. Yes. God will save this people from their sins. And he, one and the same. This is going to blow our minds, but hang on to that. There's a connection between his human nature and his divine nature. And we like to separate them out. And yes, there's characteristics, but it's one. Yahweh saves and Jesus saves. One in the same. There's this connection. I like what one commentator wrote, and I want to read it to you uh, real briefly. And he, he wrote this. Consider how Scripture holds together very separate truths of Christ's human and divine natures. He was born a baby, and he sustains the universe. How is that possible? Hold on. He, he was born a baby, and, and yet he, he exists eternally. He was 30 years old, and yet he's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. How? 
He, he, he was tired at times, and yet he is omnipotent, meaning he has all power. How? He died, and yet he defeated death. Once again, how? He re- returned to heaven, and yet he is with us. How can these be? We have to, to, to see something beautiful, unique, powerful in his human and divine nature that are both wrapped in one. Paul will write later in his, one of his early letters that, that the word became flesh. John wrote that, and then Paul will say, he put on flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we have beheld his glory. Both his natures, one, unified and connected. There's another thing that happens that, that you may have read right over as I was reading it. There are three times with the calling of his name. Did you catch it? The first time, the angel tells Joseph in a dream, you will call his name Yahshua. You will call his name Jesus. So directed to Joseph, you will. Now Joseph was probably already had a bunch of names written down. You know, probably it was going to be Benjamin Bar Joseph, right? Because that's a great name. You shorten it to Ben. You're not catching this. He probably had a short list of names. Okay, all right, all right. It's slow to go there. But he probably had a list of names. They both did, right? Like just like you did or maybe your grandparents that you've been able to help your kids name their kids or whatever. Probably had a short list. And the angel tells him, no, Joseph, you're going to call his name Yahshua because he's going to save his people from his sins. So that happens first, commanded by the angel. Then the next thing that happens, remember this? Matthew attributes the prophecy of Isaiah, in this case, Isaiah chapter 4, verse 14, Matthew's now applying something that would have been written around the time of Ahaz, one of the bad kings of ancient Israel. The prophets wrote this and said this, Isaiah did, and then Matthew applies it to Jesus. And here's another, they shall call his name. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel. So here we have Joseph being told, you will call his name. And then we have this prophecy that's quoted saying, they will call his name. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They, the whole world, the people of Israel will call. That's the second call his name. And then there's one more. There's one more that I love. That when Jesus was born, what does Joseph get to do? He gets to fulfill the prophecy. And Joseph looks down at this kiddo, this miracle, unexpected child, and he says, no, he's not going to be called any of my family names. His name will be called, his name is Yahshua. God saves. He gets to be the one to name him, not just his name, but his destiny. Joseph, who wasn't his biological dad, gets a chance to speak life into this child and to speak truth over what was going to happen. Joseph gets to do that. What what an awesome thing. Now here's something that that you may also read right over, but it's something I want to point out early on in our Matthew series. And it's something that happens, again, 
over and over, Matthew will refer to something that happened, and you know I don't like it called the Old Testament. I think the Old Testament is a, a horrible name for it. The first part of our scriptures, let's just call it those first set of books, 39 books, the Hebrew scriptures, the first covenant, okay? Started with Abraham, continued through Moses, right? First covenant. So what Matthew will do over and over, and, and, and many of the gospel writers do this, even in the New Testament, you'll see this. There's constant pulls back to what happened in the first covenant. If there was a modern word I could use, I would say hyperlink. I know hyperlink now sounds dated, but back when the internet was early, you would find a page on the internet and it would have a word in blue. Right? You remember some of this? Okay, the word in blue, and a lot of times it would be underlined. And so what happens when you click on it? Right, it takes you somewhere else, transports you somewhere else. Well, Matthew will hyperlink like crazy to what happened in the first Testament scriptures. So he's going to refer back to those first 39 books over and over and over again. Some of your Bibles uh, may give you help that way. Some of your translations, like the New American Standard Version, I think was what I had in, in Bible college. A lot of times those hyperlinks, if you will, those calls back would be in italics. So sometimes some of your study Bibles will help you with that, but Matthew does this over and over again, and you'll notice that not just Matthew, but we'll, we'll see the other gospel writers, they apply this hyperlink of Isaiah chapter 7 to Jesus. They see it over and over as a fulfillment of prophecy, and Matthew applies this. When, when, when those ancient prophecies are read, that a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us, it's exactly what happened. So these gospel writers are like, yes, that's who we've been waiting for. Mary was pregnant, and they weren't officially married yet. In Jewish circles, that would be not only just scandalous, but it would also be a family breaker. That would be a violation of a covenant between families. It would have been a serious issue. And we have this betrothal, and I realize that in our day and age, engagements are very different. Uh, people seem like anymore, people are living together before they're getting married. I've just seen that over and over again. And, and in this case, we have to transport back to Jewish culture. And for a gal to be engaged was a very serious thing in Jewish culture. And so Matthew or uh, Mark's family or uh, Joseph's family and uh, Mary's family are connected in this agreement to be uh, betrothed. And it was usually lasts for 12 months and those can only be broken by either a death of one of the people or, or a breaking of the covenant or a divorce. And so it's a very situa situation that was very serious. And once again, if you were writing this, you would have left this out. If you were writing a royal origin story, uh, this kingly line, you would probably have left this little detail out. But Matthew and the other writers do leave this in because it's important that God does something with the unexpected. And, and we're, we're told in Luke that there's this moment where Mary is overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. These are the very words that we find all the way, hyperlink, all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. That the Spirit of God was hovering, overshadowing the water. Same language. And so this pregnancy wasn't done by the normal conventions we would think of, and especially not even the Greek and Roman weirdo gods and goddesses 
co-op, you know, kind of getting with humans and making these hybrids. Nothing of the sort. This is a, a creation moment. And so the words are very, are very similar to Genesis. So this happens in the womb of a, of a young, unmarried Jewish girl from Sticktown, Nazareth. Who would have believed it? If you were in the first century, would you have written the story this way? Would you have expected the story of the royal king to happen like this? I don't think many of us would. We wouldn't have expected a royal birth story to happen. For, for most of us, we're familiar with the, the British crown. and Right now, that's all blowing up all over the place, it seems like, with these writings and these shows or whatever. But you have the royal family in Britain. What usually happens in the way human kings and kingdoms work, you, know, you have someone who's born in the family line that becomes king. In this story of Jesus, the king of kings and lord of lords, already the king, submits to being born in a very humble way, a reversal. As some theologians call it, Jesus brings a kingdom of the upside down. And here's we see it. We wouldn't have expected it. God often operates on a time frame that you and I wouldn't expect. Many of you nodded when I was talking about sometimes that things happen unexpected. Many of you have experienced this. Some of you have been following Jesus for a while, and you realize those things that we expect sometimes don't happen right. But sometimes, and many of us can attest to this, the unexpected is actually better than what we would have expected or planned. And this is what's happening in this story. Joseph says yes to God. I think we see here in this very short passage the integrity and the character of Joseph. That when he was told, and he was told this about this unexpected thing that was going to happen, he trusted, knowing that he was likely facing down decades of ridicule. In a small town, people talk. Oh, he's, he's that, you know, she got knocked up before he was married. This was happening. And Joseph saw all of that and said, I'm still going to trust and I'm going to obey. He agreed to do I think we're seeing a glimmer of Joseph's character, even when the unexpected happens. What about you? When the unexpected comes your way, are you going to be leaning in or running the other way? Jonah did that. That story was kind of a sad story. It's not a happy ending in Jonah, if you've ever read that story. Jonah ran the other way. Joseph said, no, I'm going to lean in when it's difficult, when I'm facing persecution. This is unexpected, and I'm going to trust God. And my only point today is this. Trust, choose trust and obedience over convenience. When it seems out of the ordinary, trust and obedience over convenience. We love our convenience. We love our comfort. But some of the greatest things happen in our lives when we're uncomfortable. I like what one theologian has been quoted as saying is, we need to be okay with God allowing the comforted to be disturbed. We need to allow God to, to disturb our comfortable, to, to do something new in us, that we be willing to trust and obey even when it's not convenient. And you might be thinking, we're reading this story again, and Ben, come on. Virgins don't give birth, and dead people don't rise from the dead. We in our modern world, we know this. Well, if we could suspend our judgment for a second and just realize that God may be doing something unexpected, something that we can't explain, and are we okay to lean in when it seems difficult or the path seems narrow, that we would trust God 
over our convenience. And that's my big, big hope for us. And this, this week, wrestle with that. God, where have I been trusting my comfort and my convenience over obedience? God is calling us to obedience, even when it seems crazy and unexpected. I'm praying that over us. Let's pray here. If, if, you, if you're here today, you've never said yes to Jesus as your Yahweh saves. I encourage you to do that today. Let's lean in and pray together. Father, we come before you. We thank you for the fact that you're powerful and mighty and you do the unexpected. Father, would you do the unexpected in us? Let the power of your Holy Spirit move and push us to those places where we've been comfortable or convenient that you would do something powerful through us, even if it's unexpected. And may we, we embrace it and not run the other way. I pray that you give us the courage to say yes, to trust you and obey regardless of convenience. And may you continue to do a mighty work through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.